Welcome to the Plutonomics Podcast with Lori Cammie and Barnaby Levin. The word Plutonomics means the study of wealth. It's our mission to educate, to help clients think about their goals and how they might benefit from working with an advisor to achieve them. But more importantly, it's to make sure our listeners understand both the pros and cons of any issue so they can make informed decisions and increase the odds of finding the right answer for them. You see, it's not who's right or wrong, but knowing there are no disinterested parties or unbiased opinions and that where you sit depends on where you stand. The challenge to making good decisions is to start by questioning one's assumptions and to break free of our prejudices because the truth usually lies somewhere in between. There are always two sides to every issue, both of which have merit. Well, Stephanie, thank you for coming in today and having a session with our clients. It's great to be here in person. I know. In our new offices. It's so beautiful. And New York is back. Absolutely. Your clients should come. You guys should come and, and visit, right? Absolutely. Right. So before we get started, I'd like to reintroduce myself, Lori Cammy. I'm the partner at LCK Wealth Management here in New York City. And Stephanie Link, our guest today, who's the Chief Investment Officer at Hightower Advisors. And you may know her from her commentary on CNBC. But more importantly, I'd like everyone here to know that Stephanie rather be on ESPN <laughs> talking sports. Sure would absolutely. Yeah, it's my dream. <laughs> I uh, always wanted to be. Do you remember Chris McKendry? Yes. Okay, that's who I wanted to be. <laughs> so growing up, I saw her. I'm like, that's such a cool job, and she had such a sense of like understanding of sports, but so a wonderful personality, and she was, had this wit about her too. So that's who I wanted to be, and somehow I. I got into TV, but took a detour into the financial services industry. So well, I wanted to own a sleepaway camp. So we're not too far apart. <laughs> That's awesome. I love that. <laughs> yes. Yes. So today we really want to talk about what's happening, what's going on in the world in 2023, mm-hmm. right? We came off a really terrible economic year in 2022. All markets were down. Yes. There was nowhere to hide. No. And we've finished the first quarter with some upside surprises and also some pretty horrific things happening in the banking industry. Mm -hmm. So we thought it would be helpful to talk about economics, geopolitics. When will the political arena come into focus in the markets? Mm -hmm. What's really going on with inflation? Is it coming down? And The scary word, are we in a recession? Mm -hmm. Will we see a recession? One of the things that came up was that you had this day of the stars of other commentators and Brendan Henry, one of our wealth advisors attended with clients. And I thought since most of our clients did not hear anything about that, that during our discussion today, you might highlight what you thought was important in that area. So really our first question is, we've been seeing rising interest rates. We've been seeing some regional bank failures of places that unless you were in Silicon Valley in a startup or you were an attorney with Signature Bank, you might never have heard of those banks mm-hmm. and, it, and it shook the markets, mm-hmm. but not for very long. No. So what do you think is next and what should we be focused on as long-term investors? A lot has happened so far this year, for sure. Um, and as you mentioned, last year was just so so challenging in every way. Um, and what I say to people all the time, and you've heard me say this, Lori, when it's when there's so much uncertainty and the markets are doing kind of this volatility thing, turn the TV off. Seriously, I want you to watch me, but turn it off because it scares people, and and you know negativity is. It sells versus positivity. So that's the first thing. The second thing is last year was an anomaly, right? Mm -hmm. You mentioned equity markets are volatile and we were down 18% in the S&P 500. Didn't feel good. But I think people expect volatility in the equity markets. They don't in the bond markets. They don't remember that you actually could lose money in the bond Mm -hmm. markets. And unfortunately, that's what happened in spades. So you lost equities, you lost fixed income, you lost all hope. And as long-term investors, well, first and foremost, your clients are so lucky to have you because you've been doing this for such a long time. You have such great perspective and you're calm. 
Well, thank you. No, it's true. Honestly, it's, and I can't say that about all the advisors. <laughs> I'm just going to tell you that right now. So your clients are very, very lucky. So what I would say is the long-term, remember this, the long-term average for the S&P 500 total return is about 7%, right? Mm-hmm. And in fixed income, it's about 5 to 6%. And so we had a really crummy year in both last year. Think of long-term, the that you're going to see these these volatile periods, but over the long term, you're going to be okay. In fact, the 60-40 portfolio for the last decade actually had a total return of 6.1%. That's not so bad. Actually, I think that's good. That's one of the things that we talked about on our Plutonomics podcast is, is oh. that balanced portfolio worthy of looking at sure. again? And sure. for five years, we said no, because interest rates were at zero. That's right. Now there is an alternative, right? Right. And that is there hasn't been an alternative in a in a very, very long 10 years. And so, so how does inflation play into all of this? Yeah. So so to, to this is the 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 issue of inflation is it happened because we put an enormous amount of stimulus into the system, not just from the Fed and monetary mm-hmm. policy, but also the government fiscal policy. So I've said this number to you before, you know, I've talked that at the peak of all of the fiscal and monetary policies that were put in place it equa- it was it was uh it was about 60% of us gdp wow so if you think about 2008 the great financial crisis that at that point we we the the fiscal and monetary policies that were put in place was 5% so f- we put 60% of gdp in all kinds of stimulus so and we had to, by the way, because we, we closed down. We had to. Every we it, it was absolutely, I give the Fed and I give the government an A plus for doing what they did at the moment. Right. In May of 2020. <laughs> Fast forward three years later, meh, not so much. We have some challenges, but that led to inflation, right? And, right. It, and it takes, as you know, it takes about 12 to 18 months for any kind of policies to get felt into the economy. Well, they're still fighting about whether to spend some of that money. So it hasn't really fit through. That's exactly right. And we have a trillion new proposals and bills that were passed that have that have everything to do with onshoring and that sort of thing, which I think is very appropriate. But we haven't even seen that yet. No. So fast forward to inflation. So that this led to inflation and this led to the Fed having to change what their very accommodative policies. Don't forget, March of last year is when the Fed first started saying, oh, we're going to have to change our policies. We're going to have to, instead of being very accommodative at zero interest rates and buying all the bonds in the world that they could, they actually reversed course and they started a tightening program, right? So they started raising interest rates. They started running off the balance sheet. uh, And I would argue this is where they kind of get a D because they started too late. At the same time, they announced in, in March of last year these programs that they were going to change, right? At the, at, in March, they were still buying bonds. So the real tightening started in April of last year, and they've raised rates several several times, and now they're probably going to do it another time. I would say they were behind when they first started the whole tightening cycle. And I think now they're behind in not recognizing that things are slowing down and that inflation is starting to come down, right? So what at the same time of all the stimulus that was put mm-hmm. in place, we had supply chains that were clogged up from the t- pandemic. So it was a, a perfect storm of bad. So that's why we have a little bit more inflation. I think the Fed and them raising rates will work in terms of lowering inflation, but will it get to the 2% level again? I don't think so. Well, unless we go really into the into a recession and it's a deep recession for an extended period of time, which is not what I'm calling for. But but that is the whole that's the whole debate this year is okay. Well, the Fed started raising rates in March and and April of last year. It takes 12 months to get into the system. And so we're going to start to see a slowdown in the economy, which we're already starting to see. But we're also starting to see inflation come down. So that's good news. But we still have yet to feel the the overall effects from what the Fed has done. So I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no, no. I think all of these are important points in your day-to-day life, not only in investing, yes. right? So um, the commentary has been the price of eggs. Oh, yeah. People who, who've never thought about, you know, yeah. going into the grocery store, never mind that one in four 
people in America are below the poverty level. Right. Um, but there is a disconnect between the bond market and the stock market. Mm -hmm. And people are asking where to put money and whether the U.S. is the place to be. And in the first quarter, while there was a strong rebound in technology and in growth stocks, it was very narrow, mm -hmm. right? And yet international stocks outperformed, which would be nobody's expectations with what we've seen with Russia, China, the Ukraine. So is the bond market wrong? They're acting like there is a recession coming. And the stock market, while narrow, it has been uneven mm -hmm. in the rebound. So your comments about the consumer is really important. Will the consumer stop spending? Credit card debt is up. Floating rate debt for corporations is finally rising, mm -hmm. right? Um, we've enjoyed that in some of the portfolios that we've invested. But really, what would be the sectors to sort of hide in? Mm -hmm. And should we be if there is a small recession? Or, or what would the thoughts coming out of the various events that you hosted mm -hmm. with others that you would agree with? Yeah, I think that the first and foremost, we are going to definitely slow down. We are already starting to see it in housing. We're already starting to see it. You want to hold it? Mm -hmm. we're, we're already starting to see it in housing, and we're already starting to see it in manufacturing. When you look at kind of ISM reports and purchasing managers reports, all that real, real granular stuff that you don't have to worry about, but it's data points that we're seeing that those two parts of the economy are definitely softer. Softer. Um, and I expect that, and that's, by the way, that's what the Fed wants. The Fed wants to slow housing because if you think about housing, it's only 10% of the US GDP, but there's a multiplier effect because when you buy a house, you have to buy stuff to go in the house. You buy stuff that goes outside of the house. You buy a car to get to and from the house. So there's a big multiplier impact of housing and they want to slow it down and they have. And that part of inflation actually has worked. The goods side of the economy is actually seeing almost deflation at this point. Mm -hmm. Flip that over because you asked about the consumer. The consumer is no longer spending on goods because they bought all the stuff during the pandemic. Now they're spending on services. And the services part of the economy is really big. It's like 70% of US GDP. Wow. And it's 75% of consumption. And so services, what do I mean? Restaurants, hotels, Air going out on a, an, an, a boat or on airlines and travel, and it's booming. And I, I'm I'm not sure about you, but I, when I go out, I mean the restaurants are packed. Yes, New York is packed, and so that part of the economy I think is stickier. And that's where my colleagues and I we agree very much that that's why I think the Fed is going to engineer a soft, either a soft landing or a slowdown or a recession. It will lead to slower growth and slower inflation, but does it really lead to that services piece really coming down? Because people want to go out after this crazy pent-up demand. And so that's the thing that's actually been on the positive ledger on the economy. So housing and manufacturing weak, consumer strong. And why is the consumer strong? Not only because they want to go out, but because they have jobs. And the job market is still very healthy. Now, the numbers are starting to creep in the wrong direction on jobs, but we're still very, very tight. The uh, job openings report that I look at on a monthly mm -hmm. basis, it's called the JOLTS. And we have 1.7 jobs available for every one unemployed person looking. That's still high. It's, it's still come high. down. It's come down from two mm -hmm. to one. So mm -hmm. one, but 1.7 is still high. Mm -hmm. So that's why the consumer feels good, though, because if they, oh, and by the way, if they're, they're getting uh, higher wages on average from, from some of the services that I look at, about 7% wage growth year over year. But if you switch to another job, you can get 15% an increase in wages. So oh. people are moving all over the place, right? Mm -hmm. So, so you, you know, I still think that that's a place where you want to have exposure to the consumer as a whole. If interest rates and the economy slows, guess what? That actually is going to help housing. You're going to start to see a reversal. Um, so I, I think that if you have a long-term time frame, I, I like housing, it's, even if we go into recession. And uh, But for all of these reasons, if you add it all up, you had asked, are we in a recession now? I do not think we're in a recession now. Mm -hmm. I think we're running at about two, two and a half percent in GDP. It's pretty healthy. And it goes back to there's a lot of there's still a lot of stimulus in the system, believe it or not, right? From all these programs that we put in place. So where else would I want to be? 
I think I want to, this year I have a barbell. Last year I was much more cyclical, more value as interest rates were going higher. Um, and there were those areas were really beaten down and I avoided tech. This year it's been a balance. I want to own some tech and we can talk about all different themes within tech, but I also want to own some cyclicals. And here's the reason, because you had mentioned international, mm -hmm. China is reopening. They just went maskless last month. They've had three and a half years of being a pent up demand of being at home. They're behind us with regards right. to that. So the China reopening story is really very powerful. And as a result of China being improving, Europe is actually better than expected, stronger than expected, because they're such huge trade partners. So Europe is doing better than expected. I mean, I honestly, this time last year, I thought Europe was in a, was in a recession and it was going to be dire. And thankfully, they had a warm winter. So they didn't get killed on natural gas mm -hmm. and that kind of cost. But it also is because China is rebounding and Japan is actually rebounding. The IMF has raised their GDP levels for all three of these countries in the last month. And China just yesterday reported GDP that was much better than expected. And their retail sales, so it goes back to pent up demand, retail sales rose 10.5% wow. from 2.5% prior quarter. So you can see what I'm saying. Like they have this whole services thing going on. You know the company LVMH very <laughs> well. So do I. And they had 30% growth in China in their last quarter that they just reported last week. Macau Gaming, people are dying to go. Macau Gaming is running up 50% year-to-date in their gaming revenue. So they, they, they um, post this every month. And so the point being is that I don't want to own China per se. I want to own U.S. companies that have exposure to China. That's a theme. And uh, and indirectly, that's also owning a little bit of Europe, although I'm less excited about that. I find it very interesting that Warren Buffett. I was just going to ask you about focusing that. Focusing on, on Japan. Japan. Right. And, and that's because their demographics are changing. And it's been decades, decades since they've seen growth. And they're now starting to see growth. So I think there are places within international that you can own. I would never want to have the bulk of my portfolio in international. Uh, just because it, it is volatile. Um, but I do think, and I do still think the U.S. is the best place to invest. I think they're the most, the, the best opportunities. Companies are run so well. They focus on cost cutting and restructuring and they have pricing power. Um, so I want to own a balance, a little bit of international, a little bit of kind of the consumer, some defensives within that too, like the staples. They're not cheap, but I think there is always a place for that is real defense. That's a place to, to have uh, folk, uh, some exposure. And then again, some cyclicals. What do I mean by cyclicals? Some industrials. I love the aerospace cycle. Mm -hmm. Some uh, of the some of the some of the banks. We can get into that. <laughs> uh, some of the materials companies because they have pricing power and big exposure to demand in China and energy. I still like energy a lot, and it really has lagged year to date. So, um, so those are all the kind of the the big picture places where I'd like to have exposure. And then, of course. You have fixed income and you have alternatives and that's your expertise too. And what you want to guide in terms of, is it 60-40 allocation? Is it 70-30? Is it 90-10? You know, that's what Lori is amazing at and she can figure that out and with, with all your clients and, and depending on the risk profiles. But um, I think that's really important. And why would I not, you know, buy a 5% yielding instrument and hold it to maturity and I don't have to worry, right? I don't have to worry about the fluctuations, that kind right. of thing. And then of course, I know there is another, there's also a place for alternatives uh, as a smaller portion of, of portfolios as well, just for diversification purposes. Right, well, the things that we've been discussing with our clients um, and have put in some of our podcasts are some of the themes that you brought up, which counterbalance, reshoring, you know, yes. all the bills to bring back manufacturing here. The geopolitics of China, Taiwan, Japan has made some companies more fearful. The growth in India's population, we don't really have any exposure directly in India, but the S&P 500 surely has a oh. huge exposure to Japan and China, oh, sure. right? Because of manufacturing. And I know one of our concerns right now 
is the debt ceiling fight. Mm -hmm. And McCarthy was just at the stock exchange, mm -hmm. um, sort of playing that up. And um, it sounds to me like there could be one more bump in the road because the recession sort of got priced in almost last year, mm -hmm. right? Most stocks are still not up. Right. All the IPOs went by the wayside, so to speak, and there'll be some gems there. I think your point about Warren Buffett is very interesting because we haven't talked about Japan since the late 80s, oh, I right? Mean, absolutely. When I, when yeah. I was a peon, nobody. I was going to say, both of you are <laughs> <laughs> on a trading desk. It right. was crazy, yeah. Right, and that was the last time Japan was exciting. Right, that's right. I mean, it's been decades. It absolutely has. And you know who else has been investing in Japan? Stevie Cohen. So he, and he used to be at SAC, a very, very large hedge fund. And now he runs a family office, but- And the Mets. And the Mets. Yeah, and the Mets. That's right. And the Mets. But he, but he's, I mean, he's, he's brilliant too, right? He's just, he's a different style, right? He's much more shorter term and he's trading and this and that. But the fact that he's looking at Japan and you got Buffett looking at Japan and investing heavily in, and it goes back to also what is Buffett investing in? It's always worth paying attention to, right? Well, he owns a whole boatload of Apple that we know. Um, he has a railroad that we know. He has Occidental Petroleum, which, he has bought a massive amount. And in Japan, the trading companies that he's buying are also energy and natural gas related, which I find fascinating. So he's making a really big bet on energy. And as we know, energy, um, I mean, it was a gem the last two years, it's taken a breather this year, but uh, it, it's, it's certainly an, just interesting to see what they do. Well, I will say there's a lot of talk about, you know, the tax credits on electric vehicles, the impetus for companies to become cleaner. There's a backlash going on as well, but that's still an evolution, at least 10 years, maybe oh, 15. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's going to take a very, very long time. I think the goals of this administration are very, very lofty. I applaud them. I'm, I mean, I'm glad we're trying to get clean and green and all of that, but I just, we don't have the infrastructure, Lori. You know, we just don't. It's going to take years. That's another reason why you want to own, for the long term, some of the manufacturing that you mentioned. Not only is it onshoring, but it's this whole semiconductor bill uh, and getting more companies to do business here. Um, and you kind of, it, it takes copper, right, to build a plant. Um, it takes cement to build a plant. It takes all kinds of things, right? right. And so that's why you you are seeing commodities do fairly well and you're seeing industrials do fairly well that are part of this whole infrastructure build out. So there's so many ways to invest and, and that's why it's great. You could be diversified and all, all own all of these various different themes and sectors and, and feel pretty good over the long term. Right. Well, the one of the things that I want to bring up as a wealth manager is that we do have to look at the big picture when yes. people need to spend money, when they need to save money, and we can't beat Stevie Cohen trading course, day in not, and day out. Not. And the tax situation doesn't make it at all pleasant, right? right? No, of course. Um, but we're in the middle of the presidential cycle, mm -hmm. and usually in the last two years of a presidential cycle, we see up markets. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned Japan, and it feels like deja vu in many ways to the 90s, mm -hmm. and maybe even the late 80s, right? Higher inflation, interest rates starting to be attractive. We've seen an outpouring of people taking their money out of the banks and finally realizing they can earn interest. And with very little risk as long as they spread it around, sure, right? Sure. Mm -hmm. So we have this dichotomy of too much cash slashing around, too many bonds sold off. And if the Fed is going to continue to raise interest rates, people try to time and we oh. try to tell them not to time, yeah. right? Oh. So, so what are some of the signals that you're looking at in your own portfolios of when to make changes? And, or do you feel that what you've put in your portfolio right now is a good balance for the rest of the year. And when do we start looking at the presidential cycle? Yeah, so that's a lot, that's a lot there. Um, I mean, I think first and foremost, um, I think Congress is more important and the makeup of Congress is more important for the equity markets and even the bond markets, more so than the presidential change. And if you have gridlock, which we have right now, mm -hmm. believe it or not, Wall Street loves gridlock. I, I mean, it's so frustrating, right? Uh, you know, it's just as an American, you know, you want things to get done, but gridlock leads to nothing getting done 
And while we'll hear the bickering back and forth and it will be annoying, nothing getting done is good for the equity markets. It's always the uncertainty if you have one party running versus versus having a mix. Which is why the budget bill and the deficit spending bill has to get passed in some form or in another. In some form. And I do think it will. But I right now, this is on both sides. There are extremists, more extremists than we've ever had on both sides. So it it's going to come to the 11th hour. I think it will. I think they'll get something done, but I think it comes down to the 11th hour. And I think as we get closer and closer and closer, and you probably have until about June, July, I think that Yellen can kind of maneuver some things, but it'll get, it'll get a little intense. So to your point, could we see another gyration in the markets? Sure. That's entirely possible. And in fact, I'll guarantee you there will be, there'll be gyrations in the markets to come for years to come, right? That's what right. it is. It's, you can't, you can't predict. Um, the future and the unknowns are the scariest thing. And so we don't know that's an unknown to your point on the presidential cycle. I don't think it's going to matter materially for that for the markets. Again, because Congress is more important. At the end of the day, the most important thing, Lori, is how much does the Fed slow the economy? Are they rational about getting to a 5%, 5.5% Fed funds and then just waiting to see what it does to the economy? Uh, or do they overshoot? Mm -hmm. And and then, you, you know, can they engineer the soft landing? Is it going to be a hard landing? Is it going to be a recession? How long is it going to be? Recessions are totally normal, by the way. And believe it or not, markets act very well once a, a recession has been declared. The problem is it's always in the rearview mirror, right? Right. So, so these are all a lot of uncertainties. And the reason we focus so much on the economy relative to the markets is because what is it going to do to earnings? And if I can tell you one thing I've learned in my 30 years, it's that stocks follow profits on the way up and on the way down. So that's why we care about the economy and what's going to happen to demand. The nice thing is I go back to, well, at least we have China on the rise. Mm -hmm. At least we have Europe stabilizing. We have the Japan situation. Maybe you have some offsets to what's happening, what's going to happen here. And I don't want really to scare anybody. It's not, it's fine. You're, you're long-term, you have long-term investors. They're going to ride through this perfectly fine. They really will. And you'll calm them down and, uh, and, and, and it'll be, it'll all be okay. It will work out. Yes. And I go back to the long-term average of, of owning equities, seven to 8% and, and fixed income five to six and add them together and do whatever kind of formula you want to do in terms of an allocation. And I think you'd be fine. Well. Wow. That sounds very positive. I, I try. I try. <laughs> I got. I, I got called. I got called a glass half full person on TV yesterday from Scott Wapner, and I said, "I'm not glass half full or glass half empty. I'm just trying to be a realist." But I do try to find opportunities, right? I mean, that's what we do. We try to look right. for where there are Absolutely. where there are bargains and where 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 we can make our clients' money. Sure. So I want to go back to one point again. Uh, to put it in perspective, mm -hmm. what happened with the um, rolling over from the cryptocurrency FTX, mm -hmm. which people have already forgotten about, I which know. was a big deal. Uh, yeah. With Sam Bankman Fried, right? Uh, being basically a mad off or a fraud, mm -hmm. right? To real banks yeah. having a run on the money, mm -hmm. right? Because it is a game of trust. Oh, sure. If, you know, if, if a bank takes in a billion dollars and they only have to have less than 100 million in reserves, well, everybody can't go to the door at the same time. Right. And the world has sped up. Mm -hmm. So what happened in the 90s in the savings and loan crisis now is exacerbated in time. Sure. Right? So the, that is one of my questions. Is that a signal for the Fed to slow down? Mm -hmm. Is that a signal for clients to get more conservative, which what is what we've seen, mm -hmm. right? Um, people yeah. hoarding cash or spreading it around and... Will that make for opportunity? I, I think it will. I think the second half, we yeah. will be seeing a rise in the markets. I think you had three banks, the three that failed. So Silicon Valley, Signature, and Credit Suisse. All three of them had idiosyncratic problems. We know the Silicon Valley Bank, 62% of their deposit base was came from venture capitalists. That's right. number one. Then they didn't have a risk officer. Off. That's number two. <laughs> and then they mismatched their fixed income book. And all that means is that they were buying high quality fixed income at very, very low interest rates because the Fed hadn't been raising rates. And they thought they could park their money into a 30 year or a 20 year or whatever 
longer duration assets at two to three percent. And that's when the Fed raised interest rates, it skyrocketed higher, which meant there the value of their bonds fell. And then to your point on run on the bank, the digital environment made it only worse, exacerbated the situation. You could get on your phone and you can put your password in and you can journal out $400,000 overnight or a million dollars or $10 million. So that was Silicon Valley. Signature was all crypto, really bad loan mix, um, and really late to the crypto party in the ninth inning, which is really a shame. And then Credit Suisse, we know that Credit Suisse, for years, you know this just as well as I do, for 15 years, this co this company has been problematic. Right. 15 years. It should have shut it. it right. A long time ago. So it all happened to spiral, spiral, spiral. So to you, you asked about, does that make me more concerned about banks? The, the regional banks are definitely getting tighter on their lending standards. There's no question. Will they be losers? Sure. They're going to lose market share. They already have. JP Morgan told us that last week right. when they raised their net interest income numbers. The big 20 are fine. They're better than fine. They're, they have excess capital. This is not a credit problem. This is a shifting of asset problem because you have alternatives again, right? Mm -hmm. CDs, money markets, anywhere on the fixed income, especially on the short end of the curve. So to me, I, I think there are opportunities. I have actually bought a couple of companies in the March swoon some of the banks, when they got really hit really hard, I mean, you had some high quality companies that were down 30%. So I think those are opportunities. Again, I look at the liquidity, I look at the market share, I look at the deposit base, that kind of thing. But I'm, 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 I will tell you, we're not going to, we're not going to go unscathed from the regional banks tightening. And I think the overall big banks probably on the margin will also start to tighten. They haven't so far, and all the commentary from the companies have, during earnings season have, has been, consumer remains strong, and the market and the economy look good, and we're going to slow. Things are eventually going to slow. But I do think that's one of the reasons why, when I saw this happening in March, I, I kind of thought, you know what, now is the time to be balanced in the portfolio. And, and that just means not to have massive overweights in certain sectors, in certain stocks. It's like be even keel on a balance and quality companies, blue chip, number one or number two in their industries, balance sheets, free cash flow, big, really big on free cash flow. And so to me, um, and that goes the whole spectrum of, of every sector in, in the equity markets. And I think you would want to do the same in the fixed income. Right. Well, and that leads me to mention two, two other things. The way that we can use you is as one of our portfolio managers, right? Sure. And when we think about investing in some of our own portfolios, we have been very big on something that you started to touch on that I think is important here. And that was defense, cybersecurity, and that there's all kinds of technology or tech-enabled companies. Oh, yes. Right? Today. And um, quite frankly, the budget deficit, if it gets sorted out and rebalanced, having a balanced budget like the 1990s seems like an impossible yeah, mission I know. at this point. Um, but defense is one of the largest sectors of spending. Oh, sure. Right? Absolutely. And these leaks that we're hearing about are just the tip of the iceberg. Because oh, yes. when we hear about something, it's past. Mm -hmm. And that's true. So my point is, is that in at what we're seeing in um, the year to date was people spent on the consumer stocks, they rose. People spent on technology, they rose. It was almost like the banks are bad. Well, a tech company that hasn't borrowed very much that's cash rich, let's move our money there. It mm -hmm. used to be, let's move our money to bonds. Mm -hmm. That's right. Right. This is the only industry where when things go on sale, people sell. Oh, I know. Rather than I go know. shopping. I know. People, people say they buy low and sell high. They do not. They they buy high and sell low, and it and that's the the, the emotion. You know the, the 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 times when I'm literally under my desk and I'm like pressing the tr the the set the buy button, and I'm like, oh, this I'm gonna be this is terrible. I know that's always right because it, it's so hard. It's so easy when things are going so well to say, oh, I'll just ride the train. The momentum train, it, you know, it, it's good when it goes up, but when it starts to fall, and this is what happened to tech last year. Technology had had, what, 10 years of growth over value, outperforming, and technology was a big part of that. And then all of a sudden, the Fed starts to raise rates. 
And as you raise rates, long duration assets suffer, right? Because all of these technology companies, most of them, they have to, they have to borrow, right? To, to fund their growth. So the rates go higher. Uh, they're paying more in that and in more interest. And so you had this spiral last year of growth and technology. They were overowned. They were well loved. Everyone thought they were safe havens until they weren't. And that was the momentum. And then all of a sudden, and then they were down. Now, every one of those, every one of the technology stocks got caught up in it. Not one was spared, except IBM. I think that was like the best one. And they're not <laughs> anywhere in the world, right? They're, they're you were an early talker about saying, let's look at I, IBM again. I know. I made it. I did. I made a lot of money, but, but that's not the, you know, the cutting edge companies, right? Or the growth companies and all the FANG and all that. Those are more exciting. And the cybersecurity, those are all really exciting companies, but they just got overvalued. And so, to your point, this year we we have had a very concentrated rally where the, the top 20 names in the S&P 500 technology names, they accounted for about 90% of the returns in the first quarter. So it was catch up, little reversion to the mean, but we talk about it again. You mentioned cybersecurity, defense. Defense uses a lot of technology and a lot of the defense companies, by the way, have cybersecurity companies within them. Mm -hmm. AI, data center, cloud, these are not going away. These are amazing long-term total addressable market stories. And so the times to look at some of these companies was late last year, even early this year. And I would even argue even right now, because they're not up. You mentioned they're not up in the last year. They may be up year to date, but you can get some really wonderful companies truly on sale. Right. Right. Well, this is the time if anybody in the audience does want to send a question in, please do so. And, and while we're waiting to see if we get questions, the, the bearish signals of the hoarding of cash, mm -hmm. of the bank tremors, of the Fed overshooting, of the inflation rate still being at five and a half percent when they were hoping it would be down to three mm -hmm. by now. We can't predict. Our clients think that we have a crystal ball, know the answer, but we, we, we muddle through, mm -hmm. right? With educated, research, but human nature is human nature, of course. right? So if you were to think for now through the rest of the year, what do the CEOs that you talk to think about in where they're deploying capital or pulling back or, or laying off when they're thinking about where there's growth in the future? So I would say it's a, it's a great question. I would say that the CEOs that I talk to obviously have to pay attention to short-term trends, but they definitely think more about longer-term trends and how to position their companies uh, to benefit from the issues, the short-term dislocations, and how do they take advantage of that so that they can grow for the next three to five, 10 years and that they're very well positioned. Is that M&A? Buybacks, of course. Dividend increases, of course. CapEx. We've seen a lot of companies start to spend more on CapEx. That's going to get pulled back for sure if we go into a recession. But for now, they are spending. So what I like to see companies do is all of the above. You know, you know I want them to invest in their companies and to buy back stock. I want them to pay dividends and increase their dividends. And I also want to see CapEx, right? Um, because I think that's really important. Uh, and uh, so so I would say short term, the everyone is watching the consumer, because I just mentioned how important it is for mm -hmm. the economy. And that is the, that is the thing that for now hasn't really budged at all. Uh, so I think companies are always looking overseas. Are there opportunities there? Uh, but I think that a lot of them are looking at where are their opportunities to spread the supply chains mm -hmm. around the world, including the U.S., getting less dependent on China, watching Ukraine. Mm -hmm. So they're all the things you would think of what they're watching. Uh, but they try to think, you know, three, five, 10 years ahead. And, and that's that's hard to do because a lot can change. I was going to say, that's what we try to tell our investment um, committee to think about and our clients to think about. Yes, absolutely. So, um, you don't want to whipsaw, you're not, you, you know, that you don't want to whipsaw your clients and you want to have a game plan. And, and that's what you do so well. Thank you. Um, one of our people in the audience asked a really great question because there's been so much talk about chat GPT, mm -hmm. a term that nobody heard of 
three months ago, right? Except Gen- our, our teenagers. <laughs> <laughs> Generative AI, uh-huh. artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. How will that impact the overall economy? Will it bring growth, loss of jobs? Is it being talked about with the CEOs and the companies that you're investing in? Yeah. Oh, it's absolutely being discussed. And in particular, in the financial services industry, too. First and foremost, I do not think that AI is going to be as disruptive as people think. I think it's going to be a tool. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the more and, and and AI will only get better over time because AI, the way AI works is the more you input into the system, the smarter it becomes and it and it knows knows more. Right. But you will always need a human element in anything that we do. Right. If that's investing, is it just living? Is it in our education system? You always need people and perspective and decision makers. Those those things are important. And by the way, you know what also? They also need we need emotion. You know, we need to have people that have passion or right. people that have an understanding way back in the, I mean, you and I've been doing this for so long. We, we remember, you know, now we have the perspective that when you co- first come out of college, you don't have, right? So um, you're going to always need that. I think, can it make us smarter? Can it, yes. Can it make us sharper? Sure. But I, I don't, I don't view it as a threat. Uh, and I also, I'm, I'm just, I'm not entirely convinced that it will, um, it'll, it'll be a, a loss of jobs, not in a massive way, maybe on the margin, but I think we should embrace it. It'll it'll make us we'll learn much more over time. Make maybe it makes our lives easier. Highly doubt it. Probably makes it more complex for sure. Well, what I've seen from technology from my early trading days when a 20 million share day was a big day and I worked till midnight. Yeah. And I was expected to work till midnight. Of course. We handed everything to now is we're using robots um at one of the nonprofits to bring food to the elderly that can't walk and open the door mm-hmm. to be their pet and emotional support system. Mm-hmm. Some of it's sad, but some of it's reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's saving uh, jobs or eliminating dangerous jobs in agriculture, mm-hmm. right? Um, but I think it speeds up our lives mm-hmm. and it is all the noise that you hear. It's the 24 mm-hmm. seven, it's the information overload and you have to sort out what's smart. Right. Not what just data is. That's right. And so people can make poor decisions from it. And as my son tries to tell me, because he does AI software mm. for a living, is it's what the person knows who input the data. That's what we're using. Sure. So it's as good as the data that a human being has input. That's right. Right. That's exactly so, right. It's not going to have the answers for us, right? Like you want. Although, I don't know, my 16-year-old thing, sometimes it helps with the, with the reports, the research reports that they have to do for school. But my it, five-year-old nephew says, ask Alexa, Lori, ask Alexa. <laughs> and I'm like, I used to have to go to the library, go book out. Right? And he's just like... Yes, that's so true. That is so incredibly a library. What's a a book? I mean, come on, that's just nuts. I know. Well, well, what's what's also very interesting is what's happening in just the delivery services part of our economy. And you know, it's FedEx, it's UPS. You know, don't be surprised when you have a drone visit. You know, visit your house and and deliver your your package. I think what's amazing to me is all this food delivery and how many companies are really doing so well with it. And that started with the pandemic. We got we understand that, mm-hmm. but it's it's escalated. It's only or accelerated uh, since then. And I think it's just part of our lives. Like we don't have to go out as much as we used to because we can have everything come to us. I was getting my hair and makeup done for for the show yesterday. And one of the makeup artists said to me, she said, oh, you can even get a spray on tan. You can get the people to come to your house. And I'm like, what? I had to go to a tanning bed way back in the day. My point being is that this is a service economy and we want all these services and they're just intensifying over the, the, the last couple of years. And I think they're going to continue. It's amazing to watch. I think you're right about that. So I just want to go back and talk about what we've talked about so far. And Mm -hmm. if anyone else has a question, then we'll be able to wrap this up. We've talked about the fact that we do expect interest rates to rise Mm -hmm. a little bit more on a percentage basis, Mm -hmm. whether it's a half a point or three quarters of a point. We don't expect another 5% rise. No, we're in the eighth inning, I think. Eighth inning. Right. 
The second thing is that the consumer has to be able to spend. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. In order to keep the U.S. economy going. And we should be looking at that very closely. Yes. That's that's what I'm hearing. The next thing is the 60-40, which to the audience is 60% bonds, 40, uh, 60% stocks, 40% bonds is what pensions used to say would balance a portfolio so that you could have a retirement income, right? It's so let's, right. let's be clear about that. Yep. So that bonds are not dead. No. They don't keep up with inflation, but they're closing in on a rate close to inflation sure. right now. Yeah, right? absolutely. So, so is it something to look at, mm -hmm. right? The last thing I heard is, Tech is not dead mm -hmm. and not overpriced, depending on the company. Yeah, yeah. And that the stock markets haven't really recovered. Only a few companies have recovered at sure. this point. So this earnings season, what we should be watching at is our earnings still dropping, mm -hmm. right, on mm -hmm. the overall. Because two earnings drops is considered a recession. We can have an earnings recession and not an economic recession. That's true. And I think that it's very clear we're seeing an earnings recession for sure. Um, but, you know, we, the market has, is looking through it. To your point exactly, last year was the year when we were freaking out about this year being the recession, right? Believe it or not, we started mm -hmm. to discount really bad stuff last year. Because, and I say this because the market is a forward-looking indicator by about six to eight to 12 months, right? So last year, at this time, people were looking for this year. And you know what? There was a lot of unknowns. And so now we're here. Finally, we're here. We're, we'll see how it all works um, in terms of the earnings and what they discover. I actually think earnings are going to hold up better than most people think. I think that there is better demand out there. I think, as I mentioned earlier, U.S. companies are amazing at restructuring, pricing power, cost cutting, doing what they have to do to make the numbers. Um, and I think margins as a result will stay strong. Are they going to expand? No, probably not, but they'll stay strong. You have a weak dollar that helps multinationals very much, mm -hmm. right? And you have the supply chains getting better. So to me, I don't think the 9, 10% drop in a year over year S&P 500 earnings, I think that's extreme. I really do. I think we're going to hold up. People always get very nervous about earnings and they obsess about it and the market worries about it. I think over time, uh, the numbers if I there was only okay. a 9% drop in earnings and the S&P's already discounted that. I think so, right? Yeah. I think so. That's that's an interesting point. If we have time for one more question, and I think we do, the one big thing that at least New Yorkers are talking about all the time is the commercial real estate market mm -hmm. and investing in both multifamily housing, which has been a big boom, and there's not enough of it, no. right? Um, but office space is half empty, yes. right? Mm -hmm. And it's more nationwide than we think. It's not just Chicago or New York or San Francisco. The question is, will people come back to offices and work? And how does it affect our investing and thinking about it? And it's in the stock market in REITs, but it's another asset class. Oh, sure. So do you look at REITs for your portfolios? I do. I, uh, I do. And I have owned several REITs in the past. I have not as of late. Um, they're the most interest, well, other than utilities, they're the most interest rate sensitive. And we mm -hmm. have, you know, interest rates going all over the place at this point in time. But I think you want to be very, very careful within REITs. I like healthcare REITs. I like the distribution center REITs. Prologis just had an amazing, I don't own it, mm -hmm. but Prologis just had an amazing order. You know, good for you. Good for you. But I think there are, so, so I think there are pockets of places. I do worry about commercial real estate and the bank's ownership. I don't think that the big ones are at as much at risk. I think the, the region, this is again, re, I think a regional, it's going to be a regional problem. But I don't, the reason I don't think it's going to be a big problem for the large banks, because they're so, the government has regulated them to death, right? Over the last, since the great financial mm -hmm. crisis. So they've got excess capital. They have all kinds of risk mitigation efforts in, in, uh, in their, in their companies and in programs. And so, Sure, it's, it's going to hurt a couple of companies and their earnings. Yeah, but it's not going to lead to a credit a credit problem, in my opinion. Again, I think the big banks are just too well positioned 
just on the defensive side of things. But I but I do worry overall about I wouldn't own a commercial real estate REIT. Uh, and I do not think we're going to get 100% people back. Maybe on, we have an engagement day today at Hightower. Mm-hmm. So we got more people than we normally do. But I can tell you, <laughs> it's very rare to have people in the office on a regular basis these right. days. And so that is definitely problematic. And I would say this, while there are problems in New York and Chicago and San Francisco in real estate, there's not a problem going on in Austin, Nashville, Asheville, Miami. The southern part of this country is booming, and I think it will continue. Right. I think we can just highlight what we talked about today. Sure. One is that you do need diversification in a portfolio, Definitely. right? Various asset classes, right? Right now, since we may have a soft landing or some sort of a recession, high quality is the most important thing. Companies that are cash rich mm-hmm. don't have a lot of debt, mm-hmm. right? Because yeah. they can be squeezed. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, dividends are important. We didn't really talk about it, but it was alluded to. Mm-hmm. And I also like to say that we should watch what happens with the deficit ceiling. Yep in the short term mm-hmm. and use that as an opportunity. Yes. Right. Um, and that while we may not like the geopolitics of what's going on between China and the US or Japan and China, we have to watch what are the companies doing there because they're still doing business. They are. They have not changed, which we see that with Apple and we see that with, I don't know. I know when I like to go shopping, you're to- totally right. The women go into Sephora. It's owned by LVM. LVMH, right? Estee Lauder, 30% of their revenues are in China. Right. And oh, by the way, that CEO, he literally goes door to door, <laughs> knocks on the door. I didn't know this because he's told me this. He goes door to door in China, in some of the cities, and, and, and asks the women, what do you like? What works for you? What do you like of, my, of all the products that I have? And that's how he... One way he gets feedback. So yes, totally there's a lot. different from 40 years ago. Oh right? my gosh, I know. <laughs> I know, I know. But it's, but it's also like you mentioned, um, you know, technology and, and, and agriculture. It's also, yeah, a John Deere. It's a Caterpillar, right? It's, it's, it's a Boeing. Right. So there's a lot of ways to play a China recovery. And, and I think it's underappreciated. That's what I think is one of the most underappreciated themes this year. Right. So we are intertwined and we do need each other. We do. That's what we do. Yeah. Well, I want to thank the audience today for listening to us chat away. I hope (laughs) we gave you a little bit of a nugget that thinking long-term, thinking about demographics, thinking about the consumer, um, thinking about technology are important and that saving for the long-term is so important. Absolutely. Well, I hope that we do this again soon. Me too. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been great. LK Wealth and Asset Management and LCK Wealth are a group of investment professionals registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC, and with Hightower Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC, and advisory services through Hightower Advisors, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there is no guarantee that the process or investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance and any investment opportunities referenced may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced are from sources believed to be reliable and any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. Neither LK Wealth and Asset Management, LCK Wealth, or Hightower shall in any way be liable for claims and make no expressed or implied representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the data or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information referenced. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced and such data and information are subject to change without notice. This document was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of LK Wealth and Asset Management and LCK Wealth and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates. 